uh, men's prayer breakfast Saturday morning, February the 10th at 7.30, and then that'll follow with the deacons meeting. We always have one the week of, or the Saturday before the congregational meeting, which will be on the 11th. So if you're not a member, we still encourage you to stay for it so you can understand what's been going on uh, with the congregation. And then we're going to have a conference in relation to supporting Israel uh, the week following that, starting on Wednesday night, February the 14th. Olivier Melnick, who is with um, Chosen People Ministries, is going to be speaking. Uh, his topic is uh, on anti-Semitism, and I've heard him two or three times. He's just really outstanding on the topic. And then um, on Thursday night... Uh, Ambassador um, Yorm Edinger, who's spoken here before, will be speaking. I don't know his topic. And then we're invited. We're inviting people from Congregation Beth Yashurn to come that Thursday night. Then we are going to go there on Friday night, for, and then they have Shabbat dinner after the service. I think the service is at 6.30. She did not put that in here. But I think it's at 6, 6 or 6.30. And it's over in the Meyerland area. It's on Beechnut, just inside the loop. And if you're going to come because they have extra security now since uh, October 7th, then we need to have an RSVP uh, and contact information for people who are going to, uh, going to go there. So uh, we encourage you to come out, and uh, that we'll get some information out to people who are going to come in relation to certain things that you ought not do, like show up with your cell phone on, and if it lights, you know, that's not kosher, not acceptable. You know, thou shalt not work on the Sabbath, and having light come on, that was the first act of God in creation. So that is uh, a no-no. All right. It's always fun. How many have been to Israel? Remember, you've been to Israel. You go there, and you go on, on Shabbat. You go into the elevator because you can't press a button and turn the light on. They have a Shabbat elevator, and it stops at every floor all the way up, and then it stops at every floor all the way down. But the other elevators, you can do it. That's for the goy. That's Hebrew for Gentiles. All right. How shall the young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. So before we get started, let's bow our heads. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can uh, uh, confess sin if necessary to make sure you're in right relationship with the Lord. Confession is in silent prayer. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful that we have you to come to, that we can bring our requests before you and give thanks to you for all that we see in our life. Father, we are thankful for your grace, your goodness, the way you oversee our lives and protect us and watch over us, the way you have provided a spiritual nourishment for us through your word. And as we study tonight, we pray that we can see how, uh, how significant the 
Old Testament scriptures are for understanding later things that happen after Exodus and things that happen in the New Testament. So, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things. Give us insight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're continuing our study. We're in Lesson 12, and this is the Passover. So as we looked at things last time, we saw that what Exodus really develops for us is an expansion on this idea of the, the war that takes place, the battle between the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. By kingdom of man, we're talking about all that man does and all that man is in living independently of God and seeking to establish kingdoms on this earth that will provide that which only God can provide. And it is always grounded on rebellion against God. The uh, ultimate uh, picture of this was at the Tower of Babel. And the Tower of Babel and Babylon throughout Scripture always represents the kingdom kingdom of man. That's what we have on the left side. But then the next big kingdom that really develops as we look through Scripture is the kingdom of Egypt. And the pharaohs go back, uh, if you trace them back to the first dynasty, that's not long, uh, just 100 or 200 years after the uh, flood of Noah. And in that culture, the pharaoh was not only one of the gods, but he is the chief god, as we studied last time. Also, in Deuteronomy 32, Moses warned the people that when they sacrifice to idols, they are actually sacrificing to demons. And so that these uh, these demons, these false gods, aren't just some uh, neutral uh, fantasy made-up entity, but they're actual demons that are uh, empowering them, that are behind these false religions, because in the angelic revolt, it is Satan's mission to distract people away from the grace of God and the plan of God. So on the one hand, we have uh, the kingdom of man, which is always based on works. Man is basically good. That's the inherent idea in the kingdom of man. And so therefore man can improve himself and can actually bring in uh, a perfect uh, a perfect world order. On the opposite side, you have the kingdom of God, which is based on grace, that recognition of man's basic problem is sin, that every human being is born spiritually dead, alienated from the life of God, and in need of salvation. We are... Uh, without hope as a spiritually dead individual. And so the only only reality in this world is to trust in God, and he's the only one who can solve that spiritual problem and give us the ability to face and handle all of the other problems which are the result of living in a fallen world. And so we see in this chart, we see that election. Now, election simply means making a choice, God chose Abraham not for salvation, but go, but chose Abraham for a specific mission. God, as it were, uh, shifted from working through the entire human race at the Tower of Babel, and he begins to work with Abraham, and he makes promises uh, to Abraham and to his descendants. And we studied this, and that is uh, described as the Abrahamic covenant. So God called Abraham and made him three specific promises. He promised that God, that he would provide his descendants with a land. It's called the promised land because God made that promise, that they would have a land that would be their uh, national home 
in perpetuity forever and ever. The Abrahamic covenant is an everlasting covenant and it has has not and will never be broken. Uh, and then, uh, so God promised land. He promised descendants that would be innumerable and that they were to be, it was a command to be a worldwide blessing. He later confirmed the covenant with his Abraham's son Isaac and then his grand and then Abraham's grandson, Jacob. And so Genesis 12, 1 through 3 is the key passage there. Genesis 3, I will bless those who bless you. It's an unconditional promise that whoever blesses Israel, God will bless. It doesn't say I will bless those who are Christians who will bless you. I will bless those uh, who are uh, believers in God, and I, I will bless you. Now, it says any human being, no matter what else they believe, if they bless Israel, if they're pro-Israel, pro-the Jewish people, then God will bless them. And this has been understood as a foundation in the legal system and the political sphere of the United States since the time of the colonies. Many of the uh, colonial uh, colonialists that came from England in the early 1600s held to a view that was called British Restorationism. That means that they were they were British and they believed that God would restore the Jewish people to their historic homeland before the Messiah would come back. As we got into Exodus last time, one of the first things that we saw was that that um, as the descendants of Abraham had been uh, moved to Egypt by God in order to protect them from themselves so that they could would be protected from assimilating to the pagan culture around them, that, um, that it was now time. He had predicted that, given that prediction to, to Abraham. So the people knew that. They were expecting a deliverer. And now it was time for God to bring that deliverer on the scene. And so he did with with Moses. Moses, uh, most people know the story. Moses saw a bush that was burning but was not being consumed by the flames, and he turned aside to see what was going on, and God spoke to him. In the conversation, uh, Moses wanted to know more about God. He said, if I go to the people and say that uh, you are going to deliver them, who is it that has sent me? He wanted to know the name of God. And so God gave him the meaning of his name. He didn't just want to know the name. He didn't want to know the label because the uh, name Yahweh had been known and it's uh, revealed back as, as early as the earliest chapters of Genesis. But it was the meaning, the significance of it was not known, just the name. And as I have pointed out to uh, all of you for the last many years, when the scripture talks about the name of someone, like believing in the name of Jesus, calling upon the name of the Lord, that phrase doesn't mean just using the proper nomenclature. It means believing in the entirety, the essence, the character of God, of, of any individual. So when you came in the name of someone, if you were a courier or a messenger and you had been sent uh, by King David to a foreign power, you would come in the name of the king 
and you're representing all that David is as the king of Israel. Same thing today. If you are an ambassador of the United States and you're sent to a foreign country and you come in the name of the United States, then all of who the United States is is backing you. So uh, God is going to give this information to, to, um, uh, uh, to Moses, and he identifies himself first in Exodus 3, 6 as, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And I pointed out last time, he doesn't say, I am the God of, of Adam and the God of Seth and the God of Noah. He's saying Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because he's referencing the Abrahamic covenant. I am the same God that made that covenant promise to Abraham, said you would be in captivity for uh, 400 years, and then he, they would send a, he would send a deliverer. And so he is identifying him as the covenant God. So the name Yahweh is associated with, um, with that promise of the covenant. And so whenever you think of the name Yahweh, it was to remind the Israelites of the covenant. But Yahweh also had the meaning, uh, I am who I am. It refers to God as the self-existent God. And that means that to be self-existent, you have to be eternal, you have to be all-powerful, you have to be omniscient. All of those things would be caught up with that. So it is a name that represents uh, the extent of God's power and his sovereignty as the, uh, as the creator God. Then when you get a little further into the episode of the challenge between Moses and uh, Pharaoh, God spoke to Moses in Exodus 6-2 and says to him, I am Yahweh. Therefore, say to the children of Israel. So he's giving the message to Moses to take to the Israelites. And he makes... Uh, five I will statements here. Um, the, we talked about five I will statements that Lucifer made in Isaiah f- uh, 14, 12 to 14, expressing his desire to be greater than God. Well, these are five I will statements that God makes. They're not self-centered. They are focused on what God will do for the Israelites. He says, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you. That second Uh, Third, he says, I will redeem you, which means to uh, purchase their freedom. Uh, In verse 7, he says, I will take you as my people. And uh, then he says, I will, I've got six here rather, I will be your God. And then uh, in verse 8, I will bring you into the land which I swore, um, which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we have these six I wills here, what God is going to do in delivering them, in redeeming them, in taking them out of Egypt, and then taking them to the land. So this is our timeline. That was our review. This is our timeline. And I'm not going to go through it tonight, but it shows that the Bible is one complete story, one complete narrative. It starts with the creation Man is created in the image and likeness of God and created perfect. And God often identifies himself as I am the creator of the heavens and the earth. I made all of the heavens and the earth. And so that demonstrates the power of God, the wisdom of God, the skill of God, and the omnipresence of God. And then we have the fall of man. They seek to honor themselves rather than God. And so God is going to bring judgment upon the human race because of sin. It separates us from God. 
it got so bad before the flood that what happens is the God says the 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 imagination of their heart is evil continuously. And then we have um, we have our buzz and the sound system again. And this foreshadows the judgment on on the Egyptians foreshadows the ultimate future judgment uh, in the final judgment. So that is in the background as we go through these judgments. We went through nine of them last time. That's getting pretty distracting as we hear that static. So those of you who are listening, take a pause great break, get a drink, grab a snack. All right, that went away. Okay, so that's what's where we are. We went through the first nine plagues last time, but now you don't hear me on the... I'll just use this until we get it figured out. We come to the tenth plague. So this is the outline for this lesson uh, tonight. Uh, first of all, at the topic is the tenth plague, the Passover, and it is a picture of salvation. It's a picture of the of the Savior, the way God would eventually solve the sin problem. The analogy is between uh, slavery in Egypt and our own individual slavery to our sin nature and the need for a Redeemer. So there's five lessons that come from the Passover, and uh, we're going to see, first of all, how the Passover lamb... All right. Okay, so this is a, this lesson is all about the Passover. We are going to go through five lessons. We're only going to get through the first three tonight. We'll do the four and five next week. Uh, five lessons that we learned from the flood that are also true in the Exodus event. So that the first is grace before judgment. The second is a decision on whom to save. And whom to judge? What will the criteria be on who gets saved or delivered or who gets um, judged? And then third, that God only and always gives only his way, and there may be multiple other ways uh, to deliverance, but there's only way for God's salvation. In the middle of these, we'll look at these two questions. One, the first one is that the Bible says that uh, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Well, how can he harden Pharaoh's heart and then punish Pharaoh for it? How does God harden his heart if we have individual personal responsibility and responsible choice? The second question is, is God being cruel to animals by using them for a sacrifice? So we'll see how far we uh, get on this tonight. So we're on the 10th plague, the Passover which is a picture of the Savior. So I want you to look at the screen here, and on this chart, on the left, you have the Passover. In the Passover, a lamb, which had been evaluated for four days to make sure that it was without spot or blemish, was sacrificed, and then that blood was smeared on the doorpost and the lintel, the cross piece, the lintel of the door. And this indicated that those inside the house were covered by the blood. The blood was a picture of purification. They're purified by the blood and set apart by the blood. 
And that is a picture of what will happen when Jesus saves. He saves us because of his death. His death is the means of our being uh, purified, set apart uh, to God. So as um, God is giving Moses the instructions, we'll look through these chapters, primarily uh, Exodus 11 and uh, Exodus uh, chapter 12. In Exodus 11, we see how God gave Moses instruction and was told to give instruction to the people. In verse 2, we read, Speak now in the hearing of the people, and let every man ask from his neighbor and every man from her neighbor articles of silver and articles of gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, this man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servant, and in the sight of the people. Now, I put this in here because... Um, you know, we have a lot of talk today about paying some sort of restoration to those who were slaves. And I think there's some people who may go to this passage. You have to pay attention to what the passage says. It doesn't say that the government's going to do it. It says that God did it. That the people were to request of their neighbors to give them of their valuables. And the people were going to freely give of their own volition. And God was going to give the Israelites favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that the Egyptians would be glad to give them. They wanted to get them out of there. So sure, take what you can. And they freely gave it. That's in 11, 2, and 3. And then in 12, 35, and 36, we see the uh, fulfillment of that. The children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, and they had asked, notice what it says. They didn't tell them. They didn't pass a law. They didn't mandate a tax. They asked them for articles of silver or gold and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they granted them what they requested. Thus they plundered. That's, I don't see that as a decent translation. Uh, it isn't plundering. It, it, the word there actually can be delivered. Uh, they, they delivered this, uh, from the Egyptians. So, so it's a, uh, an unusual word and it doesn't indicate that they are plundering the Egyptians. Now what God is doing is he's providing them with the gold and the silver and other, uh, material uh, that they're going to use in building the tabernacle. And so they're given this wealth, but not to use for themselves, but to use in the service of God. So that's where when they build the, make the Ark of the Covenant, and they make the other furniture, that's where this is coming from. So then you, the instructions are given. In verse 3, speak to all the congregation of Israel saying on the 10th of the month, on the 10th day of the first month, God is saying this is the first month on the calendar. Now, it's not the calendar that begins in September with Rosh Hashanah, which is uh, the, um, the civil calendar. This is the ritual calendar, and it begins in roughly the time period of March-April. And the first month on the in that ritual calendar is the month of Nisan, N-I-S-A-N. It's not a car. It's a month. Okay. The first month, and on the tenth of the month, every man will take for himself a lamb, 
according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. So these households, uh, at the time of Jesus, they were, uh, Josephus says, they, were, they would usually have about 10 people gather for a Passover meal. But it could be a larger group of 15, so it would be a large number, and uh, they would uh, get together. So verse 4 says, if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. And then the qualifications for the lamb. Couldn't just be any lamb. You're not going to get rid of the crippled lamb this way. You're not going to get rid of the weak and diseased lamb. It needs to be a lamb without spot or blemish and a male of the first year. And you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Verse 6 goes on to say, now you shall keep it until the 14th day. Now, why are they doing this? They would take this lamb and it comes into the house. So how are your kids going to treat that lamb? Think about it. It becomes a beloved pet within two or three days. They're probably going to give it a name. And then, uh, and that's important because it's representing the future Messiah who is beloved. Okay, so we have this lamb. The lamb's going to be evaluated to make sure it is without spot or blemish. And they shall take some of the blood and they will put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Now we skip down a few verses to verse 22 and the instructions are that you would take a bunch of hyssop, which is a a branch with a bunch of leaves on it and dip it in the blood that's in the basin and then you strike the lintel. It's, and that's what it means in the Hebrew. You, you don't, you're not just putting it on there gently, smearing it on there. You're splattering it. You're striking. And that is representative as well of what will happen, uh, to the Messiah. All of this is a foreshadowing so that the people can come to understand who the Messiah will be and how to recognize him when he comes. So they strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin and says, none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. So everybody goes in the house, shuts the door, puts the blood on the door post and goes inside and they have their meal and they stay there until the next dawn. And so they are to, while they're in there, they will eat the meal. And eating is a picture of receiving God's blessing. It's a picture of trusting in God. All of these things are wrapped up in the symbolism that is here. And God says in verse 12, For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. So notice it's God. Later he will say the destroyer. And so he's probably, he's the one doing it, but he may have had an angel. There's some uh, indication of that, but there's no mention of an angel here. So it would, it just, the destroyer will come and take the life of the firstborn in every family unless they are under the protection of the sacrificed lamb. And so what God says is, I will strike all the firstborn, both man and beast. Remember the, all the cattle, all the livestock are owned by the Pharaoh. So he is really, uh, waging war against the entirety of the Egyptian culture and nation. And, and the results of this is that Egypt is decimated, and it's not mentioned in the Bible as a military power again for about four or 500 years.
verse 13, God says, Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, hence the name Passover, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of, of Egypt. So this is is the picture. And if you connect the dots of the smeared uh, blood that's been put on the doorpost, then it is in the shape of a cross. So what God is saying is that for the firstborn to live, because what he has said is uh, he will take the life of the firstborn in every house in order for the firstborn to live, there must be a death. So God's judgment is a death in every house and actually a death in every barn, the firstborn of every every cow. So either the firstborn dies or there is a substitute. This is a picture of substitutionary atonement. Then second, God would accept the death of a substitute in place of the firstborn. So that is the imagery here of a death in place of someone else. Now, how did God use the lamb in order to identify the Messiah who he would come later on? Because this was his purpose was many times in many different ways through the Old Testament. What he is doing is providing a means by which the people can identify the Messiah when he comes. So first of all, we see that the, the Passover lamb had to be a lamb or a goat. When we get to the second column, it's about Jesus. Jesus is called the Lamb of God. He's also called the Passover Lamb. In uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul identifies Jesus as our Passover. When John the Baptist saw Jesus coming down to uh, the Jordan to be baptized, John announced, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So these are the passages. Second, it had to be a male. It's foreshadowing the male Messiah who will come. Jesus is a man, a male. Matthew one twenty one, when Gabriel announced uh, the pregnancy of Mary, he said, she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus or Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. Yesha is the Hebrew verb for save. So Yeshua is the uh, name that uh, comes from that. And it's the same name that we have in the Old Testament for Joshua. So they're both from the same root. Third, uh, had to be perfect. The lamb had to be perfect with no defects because Jesus, as the uh, sacrifice, had to be without sin. And so that is guaranteed, I believe, by the virgin birth and by the fact that he did not sin once in his lifetime. And in 1 John 3, 5, we read, And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Under the fourth point, uh, the fourth point of comparison, the lamb had to be killed at twilight. And Jesus will die on the cross at twilight as the sun is setting. They have to hurry up and get his body down off the cross and into the grave before the sun sets because then that would be the beginning of Sabbath. In Mark fifteen thirty four, um, in the ninth hour, Christ cried out with a loud voice. This would be around 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And uh, this is when he breathed his last 
Uh, fifth point is the lamb's blood was to be applied to the door frame of the house. And Jesus died on the cross, and the idea of shedding of blood, he did not bleed to death. When the soldier uh, drew his sword and uh, stabbed him through the side, up through the rib cage to the heart, John observed that what came out was uh, blood and water. I didn't have the scientific names we use today. And when a person has died in that position on the cross, then the blood will separate in the area of the diaphragm into the red blood cells and the lymph so that you have a, a, a mixture of the red, red and the clear uh, serum so that when the diaphragm was punched by the sword, then outflowed what looked like blood and water but it demonstrates that he was already dead. In, in uh, the Bible, we go back to the Noahic Covenant where it says, whoever sheds man's blood by him, his blood shall also be for him. His blood will be also be shed. So the shedding of blood was a picture of a violent form of death. First John 5, 6, we read, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood, and it is the Spirit who bears witness because this Spirit is truth. Uh, six, none of the lamb's bones were to be broken. Jesus' bones were not broken. When they when they when the sun was setting, they had to get the bodies off before sunset, before the Sabbath began. And so what happened is that uh, they were going to hurry up the death. Uh, crucifixion, you could hang, hang on the cross for two or three days before you suffocated to death. And so they wanted to speed it up, so they broke the legs of, of the thieves that were on either side of Jesus. Uh, there was a place on the, uh, on the vertical post where they could push themselves up so that as he pushed themselves up, they could breathe and uh, continue to live, and then they, would, uh, they didn't have the strength to maintain it, and they would relax and uh, but, so they wanted them to, to not be able to do that, so they broke their legs. But when they came to Jesus, he, they saw that he was already dead, and so they didn't need to break the legs. Uh, seventh, the people were to be in the house, uh, inside the house, in order to be saved. And we are to be in Christ. We are to be uh, in him, and the only way to be there is to trust in Jesus for salvation. Um, John ten nine, Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So the door is represents Jesus who is the door. In addition, the lamb was to be chosen on the 10th day of the first month, which is Nisan. On the 10th of Nisan in AD 33, uh, Jesus entered into Jerusalem. Uh, in the following days, he is uh, he is uh, accosted by the religious leaders, and he, they ask him a lot of questions. It is a picture of him being grilled or and evaluated, and um, uh, that is, and he passes as far as God is concerned, passes the test. He does not sin, even though he's under all of this hostile attack. And so God presented his lamb on the same day that at the temple that they were, the priests were selecting the lambs for the Passover meal. And then at the same time that they are evaluating those lambs, Jesus 
uh, was being interrogated by the religious leaders. So there's five basic lessons that we've learned from the flood that we're going to see are true in the Exodus event as well. They are, first of all, grace before judgment. Second, whom to save, who to judge, what's the criterion? Third, only one way of salvation. Fourth, man and nature are impacted um, by the judgment at the, at the uh, uh, exodus. And fifth, how to be saved is to trust in God. So first of all, we have grace before judgment. In the global flood, there was 120 years Enoch was warned even before that and was proclaiming the grace of God. And so you had a period of probably three or 400 years where judgment was being announced and was anticipated. Enoch warned, Noah warned, and the Exodus event, the period of the first nine, fla- nine plagues, uh, was leading up to the night of the Passover. We'll discover that there were a lot of Egyptians that responded during this grace period. That's where the phrase grace period comes from, is these events in Scripture. So they have a grace period to make their decision whether they are going to trust in Yahweh or not. And Moses warned the people. And when we come to the New Testament, when Jesus saves, our grace period is our lifetime. From the time we're born until the time we die, we don't know when that will be, We have only that opportunity to trust in God. And the writer of Hebrews says our time of death is appointed um, once unto man and after that the judgment. And so when Jesus saves, he saves us after uh, our, our death if we have trusted in him. And we are warned during the grace period uh, through the Bible and through uh, other believers. In Exodus 8.15, we read that when Pharaoh saw there was relief after the first judgment, uh, he hardened his heart. Notice it states he hardened his heart. He's responsible for hardening his heart. His heart was already hardened. He had been immersed in an extremely pagan, uh, demonic religious system since he was born. And so he had grown up and he had all of the testimony of the existence of a distinct God, according to Romans 1, that the heaven, according to Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. So there is a non-written revelation. And Romans 1, Paul says that uh, we see uh, the invisible attributes of God through his creation so that We are without excuse. There's enough evidence there to condemn anyone who rejects the existence of God. In Exodus 9, 20 and 21, among the Egyptians, there were those who feared the word of the Lord, and um, so they fled to their houses and uh, protected their livestock. But the one who did not regard the word of the Lord left his servants and his livestock in the field. And so when you had the fiery hail and these other judgments that destroyed their livelihood, it destroyed their uh, uh, protein source of food, and it was destructive to the economy. In Exodus 12, 
37 and 38, we read, Then the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot, about 600,000 men on foot. A mixed multitude went up with them also. So not every Egyptian was killed or, or, or was an unbeliever. But only, uh, uh, but only a majority probably. But there were many who trusted in the God of the Jews. And so, uh, you didn't just have the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob coming out. You had a mixed multitude of Egyptians and probably other slaves that were going to, um, uh, throw themselves, uh, in with the Jews and trust in their God. What we see during this time is that uh, the picture is of Jesus' future, the future salvation of the Messiah. God, remember, in this chart, we see that God created everything perfect, and there was no sin. And he created Adam and Eve, and they had no sin. But when they disobeyed God in the fall in Genesis chapter 3, everything was corrupted by sin. So life has only been normal on the earth, normal being defined as God intended it. And it's only was normal during the time of the, that Adam and Eve were in the garden. I I remember for years, I think, since I started doing weddings, I, I always talked about the fact that we no longer live in a normal world. Death is, or when I do, excuse me, when I do funerals, we no longer live in a normal world. When people die, it's abnormal. And that really catches people's attention because they, it's normal for us in a fallen world, but it's not normal as God intended it. We live in an abnormal world where there's suffering and disease and poverty and uh, death. So we are in this abnormal w- world until the final judgment, after which God will separate the evil and those who rejected him in this life will be sent to eternity in the lake of fire. And those who trusted him and his promise of salvation will be uh, taken to be with he- to heaven. And we will live in the future new heavens and new earth in the future normal. So we have a grace period. And that grace period begins from the time we are born until the time we die. Now, there's a period in our early life when we are not volitionally responsible yet because we are an infant and a child. But once we get old enough to understand what the creation is telling us about the um, uh, about the existence of God, from that point on, we are accountable for that. We're going to be held responsible for either uh, seeking to know God or rejecting him. That's what it's called the age of accountability, and it's going to differ from culture to culture because you have people who grow up in America, uh, even today, who are reared in, in homes. They may be homeschooled, but they're, they're with strong Christian parents, and because there's talk about the Bible and Jesus and salvation all the time, they're going to come, become aware of the gospel, the existence of God and Jesus very early. I know of some that have understood the gospel and trusted in Jesus as early as as two years old, three years old. Uh, but if you live in a country where you know absolutely nothing about God, nobody ever mentions God, there's no Bibles around, uh, religion is ridiculed all the time, 
you may not come to a point of accountability until you're maybe in your adolescent years or early adult, so that makes a difference. Now, God tells us he's given us a sufficient revelation. It's a sufficient revelation in the nonverbal witness of the heavens and the earth and all of his creation, for there we see his invisible attributes, as Paul says in Romans 1, so that we are without excuse. But we also have many people who uh, know something about uh, the Old Testament. Many Jewish people know the Old Testament and know Torah. And so we have a uh, situation in Luke, in Luke chapter 16, where Jesus tells the story about Lazarus and the rich man. I think this is, is very, um, very appropriate for us to understand. And he's not telling a parable here. You'll find a lot of uh, the trend among modern theologians is to identify this as a parable. If so, it's the only parable we know of that has a name for the character, and the char- one character is Lazarus. And so Jesus tells this story that there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. He's very wealthy. He has everything he could desire. But outside of his house, outside of the gate, there was a homeless person, a beggar named Lazarus, who had these physical maladies. His skin was full of sores, and he was begging for crumbs. Uh, and begged for the crumbs that came from the rich man's uh, garbage. Uh, moreover, the dogs, and the dogs in the ancient world were scavengers. They were not pets. Okay, so the dogs, the scavengers out there are coming along, and they're licking his sores, and uh, it's not a very pretty picture. And the beggar dies. Lazarus dies. And we're told that Jesus says he was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. I think Jesus is talking about what actually happens, that when we die, we are escorted to our heavenly home by the angels. The rich man also died, doesn't mention angels, he's buried. And he is now in a place in Hades. Hades is not the same as hell, although it's often translated that way in the scripture. Uh, Hades is the place of the dead until the great uh, white throne judgment. It is uh, separated, we'll have a chart in a minute, uh, separated into two compartments. And so uh, the rich man is in torments. Notice the description there. He is he's physically in pain, and he looks up, and he can see Abraham far off. And, and, um, and he, uh, he sees Abraham far off, and he sees Lazarus with Abraham. And he cries out, to Abraham to have mercy on him. And he says, send Lazarus back. Let him rise from the dead. Send him back to tell my brothers uh, 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 about what will happen. Uh, first of all, he said, let, let Lazarus um, dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool my tongue. So we know that it's hot. We know that he doesn't have uh, a way of cooling off. And he's tormented in the flame. But Abraham says, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is this great gulf fix. There's this this 
area between the two that is permanent and no one can get across it. Um, in verse 27, he goes on to say, uh, or the rich man says, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And Abraham said to him, listen to this. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Now, that has been a significant for, verse for me in the last several months because I had a Jewish friend who was an unbeliever who was had a remarkable life, and he was very devoted to his Judaism and study of Torah. Very devoted. He was considered somewhat of a lay expert on Torah. And he died. And they had a wonderful service for him, which I was able to watch because they filmed it. And he checked all the boxes except one. And there were times when I just, I just prayed that I would get an opportunity to talk to him. And I would get opportunities to just say a little bit here, a little bit there. But he was getting older and had some health problems, and I just was never able to really talk to him like I, like I had wanted to. And I began to regret that, and then I remembered this verse, that this man was a student of Torah. He had Moses and the prophets, and he didn't believe them. So he had the sufficient revelation. So Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophet, let, let them hear him. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will change their mind. And, Mo, and uh, Abraham said, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. So it's a matter of personal volition, personal choice. So here's our diagram of what we see here. On the left, on the one side, you have Abraham's bosom. This is where the uh, those who died who were believers, Old Testament saints, this is where they went. It's also described as paradise. And then on the opposite side is a place of torments. This is where the rich man went, where unbelievers went during the uh, Old Testament and now up until the time that uh, they are raised for the great white throne judgment. And then in, in between, there's this uh, great impassable uh, chasm. So this answers that uh, question as to what happens to the dead and are they responsible for rejecting, uh, rejecting the, the Lord and rejecting the revelation uh, that they have. And God gives us grace before judgment during the period of our uh, of our life so then we get come to the next section as i page my way through the notes since i'm one-handed tonight and we see that god gives warnings uh to uh sends believers to give warnings to the unbelievers and so in Mark 15, 15, and 16, we have this reference to uh, Pilate. Pilate wanted to gratify the crowd. He released Barabbas to them, and he delivered them. And after that, he, he had him scourged, uh, preparing to be crucified. Then the soldiers led him away into the 
a hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison. So they are rejecting this Messiah. And we have, we do the same thing if we reject Jesus as Messiah. We are participating, uh, with them. So the Bible says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And this next question that comes along is, if, uh, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, how can Pharaoh be responsible for the decisions that he made? And, uh, how can he harden Pharaoh's heart and then punish him for it? Well, when we have to understand a little bit about the Egyptian background. In the Exodus story, it tells us many times that the Pharaoh hardened his own heart. But it also says many times that God hardened his heart. So what is going on here? Did God make Pharaoh bad? No, Pharaoh was already bad, just as all of us are already bad. We are born sinners. We are born spiritually dead, separated from God, alienated from the life of God, and God intervenes. And there are those who reject that intervention. God is always reaching out, and he reaches out, we're told, uh, he draws people through his word. And he rejected the word of the Lord uh, that Moses that Moses brought. And so he, um, he was already hardened. He's a god in the pagan pantheon of ancient Egypt. And he is completely immersed in that, not willing to give it up. So his situation was that he was already evil. He was a sinner, and he rejected God's revelation of himself and the divine interpretation of history and truth. We also know, for example, with Abraham's descendants, they were dysfunctional and rebellious, and that Pharaoh is living in rebellion against the creator-creature distinction. He's rejected the creator god and he has uh, enslaved the Israelites. So just as God intervened after Tower of Babel and chose Abraham and uh, to work through Abraham's family to save mankind, uh, then uh, God sent Abraham's descendants into Egypt to prevent them from get, becoming uh, culturally lost and losing uh, their world mission. They were to be a blessing to the whole world, whole world, and then regarding the Pharaoh, he sent the ten plagues uh, to show that he was the only true God. And each plague just caused people to reject, caused Pharaoh to reject him more. You see the same thing today. Uh, it's very interesting. I was listening or reading about um, Arnold Fruchtenbaum's testimony. I read his book. Uh, his biography a number of years ago, but I was going back just to review some things. And it was very interesting when he and his family came out of Eastern Europe after the war. Um, they made it to Brooklyn, and through a series of different events, he was invited to attend a youth function for the um, American, put on by the American Board of Missions to the Jews. And he went there. And uh, became very interested because they were talking about the Bible and they were talking about Jesus. He didn't know much about, about about Jesus. But he had been trained by his father in the displaced persons camps in Germany for five or six years. And his father was a descendant of a line of uh, of rabbis. And so they were to pass on all of their knowledge to the next generation. So his father was bored. So he had become an atheist, but he still thought, 
he would pass everything on to to uh, to Arnold. So he did. And Arnold was approached by Ruth Wardell, who was the wife of a Lutheran pastor, and she was doing work with the American Board of Missions to the Jews. And she struck up a conversation, talked to Arnold, talked, asked him different questions about what he understood about the Messiah and some different things. Later, and I got to hear her uh, one time at pre-trib, and um, she said that, that um, Arnold was so knowledgeable she said, I had to go home and study the Torah for six months and study uh, rabbinical theology for six months to be able to come back and talk to him again because he had been trained so well. by She said, I, I never talked to a rabbi that knew as much as Arnold did, and he was 13 years old. So um, the point of this story is that his younger brothers and sisters also came but showed absolutely zero interest in anything that they were taught, anybody mentioning anything about about uh, the Bible or the Messiah or anything. They were just, they just didn't care. But Arnold, from at that, that point, as soon as he began to hear that, he had such a, an insatiable uh, curiosity. So it's up to the individual choices. So we have the option, just like Pharaoh, to rebel against God or to listen to God. And uh, Pharaoh had a habit of rebelling against God, and all of these circles with the X's are all the many, many decisions he made where he was rebelling against the witness that God had in the heavens and the earth, and he refused to, to listen to God at all. So when God begins to harden his heart, Pharaoh had already hardened his own heart. And then we come to uh, the next section here. We're already getting close to the end of our time tonight because of our sound issues. And so we come to the next section, which is whom to save and whom to judge. So this is the big question. We have the same analogy as with the flood. Only those who responded to Noah's message would be able to get onto the ark and survive the flood. And no one responded apart from his own family. And so there was only one way to be delivered, and that was to go through the one door on the ark and survive in the ark. In the Exodus event, it's the firstborn whose life is in danger, and if their family slaughtered the lamb, believed what God said, and applied its blood to the doorframe of the house, then uh, the death would pass over. And those who did not do that, they did not follow the only solution, then their judgment was the death of the firstborn. And the same is true in terms of eternal salvation. Jesus is clearly the one who was promised and prophesied from the Old Testament. Those who reject him uh, have rejected the only way to survive eternal judgment. So this was pictured and and foreshadowed in all of the different uh, plagues. You have the plague of the flies. It did not uh, affect the uh, uh, Israelites. It only affected the uh, only affected the Jew. I mean, only affected the Egyptians. And the uh, fifth plague, the death of the livestock. Uh, the Israelites did not lose a single animal. And the seventh plague, the plague of hail, 
The only place without hail was uh, in Goshen, where the Israelites lived. In the ninth plague, uh, a, not a single Jew died. They all applied the blood to the doorframe of the house, and uh, there was this pitch black darkness that God brought on the land, and the Israelites, I mean the Egyptians, uh, experienced death in every household, um, but the Israelites had light, and they were not in darkness. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handmill, and, the fir- and all the firstborn of the animals. Then there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as was not like it before, nor shall it be like it again. But against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue against man or beast, that you may know that the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. So when Jesus saves, Scripture says God loved the world in this way, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him, anybody can believe in him, whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And then John 3.18 says, He who believes in him is not condemned. It's, only, it's based on belief. That's all there is, to believe Jesus is who he said he was and that he could die on the cross and pay the penalty for our sins. The one who does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because they're born spiritually dead. They're born alienated from the life of God because they don't have uh, God's life. They don't have the righteousness of God. And so it concludes by saying the one who has not believed uh, that he's condemned because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. But once they believe, then God will give them eternal life, and they will be born again, the Scripture says. They become a new creation in God. So the contrast between the pagan kingdom of man is it's based on works. Man is going to save himself by his own efforts. And in the kingdom of God, man's efforts are, are useless because a dead person can't save himself. It's based on grace, and God has provided a solution uh, for to the sin problem. So next time we come back and we'll, I didn't get through three. We have five to go through. Uh, we had the sound problem. So next time we'll come back and look at the third issue, which is, uh, only one way of salvation. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to go through this, to see these patterns all through the Bible. It is always the same. There is uh, a time of grace before judgment. You give us uh, the time throughout our life to make a decision uh, in relation to you in order to believe that you have provided a Savior for us. And so, Father, you have provided that uh, that grace period, and then you have provided a, a Savior for us who has paid the penalty for our sins. And so the issue then is what, whether we will accept that free gift or not. So, Father, we pray that you would make this clear to anyone who needs to understand it better, understand what is going on here, 
and that they might trust in Christ as their Savior. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.